Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa Good afternoon, friends. So in honor of this Thanksgiving retreat, I thought it would be apt to speak more about being thankful, but in a perhaps less common kind of way than we expect. Typically on Thanksgiving, you know, we sit with our families at the Thanksgiving dinner table. Maybe we say a little prayer, being thankful for our friends, our family, our good health, our material success, peace in the world, and so on and so forth. And it's easy to be thankful to those things because we enjoy them. We like having good friends, good family, so on and so on. But what if we were to be thankful too for our problems? Thankful for the people who are mean to us. Thankful for aging and illness. Thankful for all these things that we typically think of not being thankful for, but rather trying to push them away. So the question is, why would we do that in the first place? In brief, the answer is that when we come in contact with these kinds of things, these um, perceived negative things, it tells us something. It teaches us something. Specifically, it teaches us where our weak points are. We come in contact with these things and we can see how the mind reacts. And then we see, that's what I have to work on. That's where there's still dukkha, suffering that can arise. But if we only came in contact with pleasant things 24-7, we wouldn't have the opportunity to see that. We would be just simply comfortable and complacent, trying to manipulate the external world to the best of our capabilities. <clears throat> what these things show us is where there needs to be more wisdom developed, where our weak points are. And when these painful feelings that arise because these contacts arise, then we can investigate them instead of um, trying to push them away. We can investigate them with wisdom instead. We can think of people, for example. People tend to have a strong effect on our minds, whether they be people we like or people we dislike. It's easy to be thankful for the people we like, but even the people who we dislike, who are cruel to us, mean to us, bully us, or are generally just don't get along with for whatever reason, maybe they have some character trait we dislike, any, all the gamut of things why one can have an aversion towards another person. But we can be thankful for them, not because of their behavior, but again, because we can always go back within ourselves you know, the wrong thing to do when someone responds or treats us cruelly is to respond with cruelty. At one time, the Buddha was um, <clears throat> staying in, I think it was Savati, and a certain Brahmin came to him. And the Brahmin came to him and approached him and started cussing at him, giving him all kinds of rude words and harsh speech. The Buddha, of course, was completely enlightened, so he didn't feel any painful mental feelings because of that. 
So instead, he thought that this was an opportunity to teach this Brahmin, teach him the Dhamma. And so he said, what do you think, Brahmin? Suppose that there were, you had some, uh, some guests over for dinner and you uh, tried to offer them some food, but then they rejected the food, saying, we don't want any of this food. Then who would the food belong to? And the Brahmin responded, well, it would still belong to me. It would still be my food because they rejected my offer. And then the Buddha said, so too, when you come at me with harsh speech, with cruelty, with maliciousness, with ill will, I don't accept your gift. You're trying to give this gift of cruelty to me, but I don't accept it. You can keep it. And he says further, when someone responds to maliciousness with more maliciousness, responds to cruelty with more cruelty, responds to harsh speech with more harsh speech, then they're partaking in this meal, this meal of unwholesomeness, this meal of painful feelings, this meal of animosity. And this points to something very concrete <clears throat> in that we always have a choice when we are confronting people who are difficult. The choice is either we stoop down to their level or we keep our principles and our values about us. This is always a choice. The choice may be difficult to make, especially if we aren't very strongly grounded in our moral principles of right speech and right action and so on. But nevertheless, it's always a choice. And that's really the key component here, that it doesn't, things don't have to be this way. We don't have to respond to anger with anger. We don't have to respond to cruelty with cruelty. We can respond to anger with compassion, with understanding, with metta. In the Dhammapada, the Buddha says, Nahi ve reina ve rani samantida kudachanam ave reina to samanti esa dhammo sanantano. That translates to, hatred is never appeased by hatred in this world, only by non-hatred, by metta, by goodwill, is hatred appeased. This is an eternal law. So when someone approaches us and give, flings all these insults at us when they come to try and annoy us or try and bother us. It's not proper for us to respond by thinking of revenge plots or insulting them back or doing all these kinds of things for a few reasons. A, it doesn't solve anything. Someone insults me, I insult them back, they retort, I retort, and it's just a circle. It's like two people stuck in a toilet and you pull the plunger and both of them are flushing downwards and downwards and downwards. And then they go into the sewer and then they can, you know, insult each other in there. They can finally give us all some peace of their ears. So we don't want to do that. You know, if they want to go into the sewer, let them do that. That's their prerogative. But when we have the Dhamma in mind, when we have the goals of the Dhamma in mind, we don't want to go in the sewer. It's difficult to practice there. Not even the physical sewer, the mental sewer. We can make our mind a sewer, just like how you flush down anything in the toilet. <clears throat> you make the sewer in a certain way. If you start flushing things that aren't good for the sewage system, well, it's going to back up and the sewage is all going to come bursting out. So too, when we put all this mental clutter in our minds, all these unwholesome intentions motivated by greed and hatred, 
<clears throat> Inevitably, there will become a time when green hatred just spew out of us by body or speech. And then we get in all kinds of trouble for that. We bring suffering to those who are dear to us. It's certainly not a way to be thankful to them. The way to show our gratitude towards those we love is to practice non-anger, especially towards those who provoke anger in us, so that we can be so that we can be cordial with any being we come across. This is the power that is possible. The other thing also about this kind of why this response is important is that when we get angry, the Buddha says that we're doing what our enemy would like to see happen to us. I.e., if someone has our ill, our ill will in mind and we get angry, we're appeasing them. That's what happens when we get angry. When we get angry, we're not so much harming the other person, we're harming ourselves most of all. Certainly there can be some harming brought towards those people, brought towards other people, but at the end of the day, we're the ones who have to sit alone in our bedrooms and wallow and marinate in our hatred, in our anger. The other person, you know, they come into contact from time to time, but the mind always stays. That doesn't go away. We can't escape that. And so it behooves us then not to give in to anger <clears throat> because it's not the practical thing to do. It's not the pragmatic thing to do. <clears throat> you meet people like this all the time. It's kind of that person who, it seems as though they, they want to get under your skin. Maybe it's intentional, maybe it's not, but that's your perception of it. But that too is an optional thing. We don't have to let these people get in under our skin. This relies on specifically one thing, and that's the question of, are we able to let go of our pride? Now you may ask, how is it that pride and anger are connected? But they're very intimately connected. Why do we get angry? If we look closely enough, we'll generally find that it has to do something with conceit, with pride. <clears throat> we have three kinds of conceit. The Pali word is mana. There's the conceit, I am better than others. There's the conceit, I am worse than others. There's the conceit, I am equal to others. So we try and put ourselves on something of a grid in the world. We say, I'm better than him, I'm worse than her, I'm, better, I'm equal to him in this regard, in that regard, in this aspect, in this quality. And we have all these graphs and charts we kind of make figuratively in our mind saying, oh, this is where I am. This is my position. And by doing so, we solidify our sense of identity. We put the comparisons of the world <clears throat> in our minds. And it's by that with which we find ourselves. And when this, this position is challenged, that's when these kinds of feelings can arise. You know, if some, let's say someone who you perceive as being not as good as you comes and, you know, picks a fight, insults you, or, you know, tries to show off something, suddenly your mind starts racing. Who's that? Who are you? Who are you? You can't say that to me. Do you know who I am? Do you know who I am? And the, the roller coaster keeps going on and on and on. But there's no reason for that. It's not doing anything, it's just making us miserable. The same thing can happen with an equal. 
And if someone we perceive as better, who we have respect for, what if they start acting in a, a way we don't like? Suddenly we become dejected and distraught. We thought this person was this person we should respect, and suddenly it's different now. Something's changed. Whenever things change and we have clinging, there's always going to be suffering because we want things to stay the same. We want our position in the world to stay the same because we're familiar with it, because we're used to it. And when those things get challenged, that's when there's the opportunity for these things to arise. <clears throat> we can also think of, you know, when we, when we come to this Dhamma practice, truly the Dhamma provides <clears throat> a refuge from these things. I don't mean that as in saying that the Dhamma protects us from angry, hostile people, but when we have the goal of the Dhamma in mind, then suddenly everything falls into perspective. You know, someone comes and is annoying to you, you find annoyance with them, or they have some quality you don't like, whatever. You can think to yourself, well, that's fine, whatever, but I have the Dhamma to practice. That supersedes anything. Why would, I, why would one devote even a modicum of mental energy to worrying about that, to being angry about other people's behavior, when one has this Dhamma to practice? Certainly you can't do both of those things. You can't look into the nature of your experience when you're angry. It just doesn't happen. It's a hindrance. It's one of the five hindrances to meditation, the five hindrances to concentration. That's vyapada, ill will. And so we can use that recollection when we've really firmly established ourselves in practice. We can let these things go because we see they're not important. They're not vital. They don't get us anywhere. We just run around in circles. <clears throat> we can see the delusion in our minds when this happens. It's not only hatred there, but it's also delusion. We have anger arising in our minds, and that's one thing, but then the anger goes around in circles. We think we're getting somewhere with our angry thoughts. We think that eventually, if I think about this long enough, I'll come out the other end and there'll be some magical solution that everything's going to be different. And that's just delusion. And we can recognize that. We can recognize my mind is deluded. We can recognize that my mind is full of hatred. And that's the first step to getting rid of those things, to acknowledge them. That's why establishing mindfulness in every moment is so important. Because when we establish mindfulness in that kind of way, then we can recognize these things as they come up and not get sucked into them. Because that's typically what happens when we get on this angry roller coaster. We get sucked up into it. We get on the roller coaster of anger and we put our seatbelts on very tightly so that we can't get off till the ride's over. Whether that means we um, cry it out or we drown our sorrows and sense pleasures or we punch the person in the face. Until that roller coaster's done, we can't get off it. And that's why it's important not to get on the roller coaster in the first place. Because if you don't get on the roller coaster in the first place, you won't have to deal with anything throughout the roller coaster. And to do that, you have to have mindfulness. It's the mindfulness that recognizes this roller coaster may look enticing. It may look good, but it's not. It's, it, mindfulness is sobering in that regard. It sobers us up from the intoxication of the defilements. We think that, that gr our greed is going to get us somewhere. We think that our hatred is going to get us somewhere. 
We think that our delusions are going to get us somewhere, or we think they're going to save us from inevitable suffering and pain. But it's not so. When we build our happiness on these things, it's a rickety contraption. It's uh, jury-rigged. And the higher we build our jury-rigged structure of happiness, the harder it's going to be when it inevitably falls due to its instability. And so that's why we have to build a very strong structure. We have to build a happiness that's based on non-greed, non-hatred, non-delusion, and other wholesome qualities. With regards to anger, the Buddha gives us a very poignant simile. It's called the simile of the saw. And it goes, bhikkhus, or practitioners, <coughs> even if bandits were to savagely cut you limb by limb with a two-handed saw, he who gave rise to a mind of anger would not be carrying out my teaching. Herein, bhikkhus, you should train thus. Our minds will remain unaffected. We shall utter no evil words. We shall abide compassionate for their welfare without ill will or hatred. And starting with those people, we shall pervade the all-encompassing world with a heart of a mind of goodwill, abundant, exalted, immeasurable, without hostility or cruelty. So there you have it. That's it. No anger is justified. That's why we like our anger, because we think it's our anger. We think our anger is justified. We think that we have a right to be angry. You hear that a lot in political discourse. We have the right to be angry about this. I suppose in a sense you do. You do have the right to be angry, but we have to be ready for the ramifications of that. And the ramifications of that right to anger are dukkha. If we don't want dukkha, we have to give up our right to anger. It's quite as simple as that. And this again comes back to the idea of conceits. We can remove this anger with wisdom, and it's specifically through non-identification. <clears throat> when people attack our positions, when they give us unwholesome courses of speech, instead of analyzing in terms of, I have been insulted, I have been wronged, that's not the way to go about that. Instead, we can take a step back and look at how that experience is coming to play. And we see that through, the sen through sense contact. We see that dependent on the ear and a sound, there arose ear consciousness. Dependent on ear con the meeting of the three, there was ear contact. And from that ear contact, everything else came. Feelings born of ear contact, perceptions born of ear contact, <clears throat> intentions born of ear contact, and so on. And thus the whole cycle gets going. And if we could let that happen, we have even further proliferation of thoughts tinged by these things. The sense contact is one thing, and then the thoughts that arise after are, are further. That's where the cycle of going round and round and round starts going. And so we can use anything, any sense contact, as a means of developing wisdom. Because specifically, we can see that each of these steps is impermanent. None of them is lasting. When the sense contact ends, the feelings end. And then, they arise, then feelings arise because of other contacts. There's a constant stream there. And further, when we establish mindfulness in this way, 
it changes our relationship to the senses, including how we respond to unwelcome courses of speech. This is obviously quite hard to do in the heat of the moment, but it's something that can be, we can train to do, that we can train and work towards. Someone comes to us and says something we don't like, and our immediate reaction is to defend ourselves because we want to defend our position. We want to defend this I, who I am. I need to defend myself. But instead, we go to the root of the problem. What is the root of my aversion to this? And we see then the feeling. A painful feeling arose. Why is that? Because there's craving. Because there's aversion. There's the craving, I don't want to hear this kind of speech. Craving and aversion are two sides of the same coin. <clears throat> we crave to only come in contact with that which we like. We crave to avoid that which we don't like. Thus there's this duality of us getting caught in this, uh, in this trap. We run towards things we like, we run away from things we don't like, and we're constantly running. The running in circles between those two things is once again our delusion, thinking that that running is gonna get us anywhere. But in fact, it just gets us nowhere extremely quickly. And so, all of these things are wonderful reasons why we should be thankful for our, our difficult times. I can, I can end this section by giving a, a story of my own and uh, part of the reason why it was that this idea came to mind. <clears throat> Some time ago in the past, when I uh, first came to Bhavana Society, there was a, a certain person uh, who's no longer here who was uh, quite an abusive person. They spoke very harshly. They were extremely condescending, narcissistic, um, always, you know, put me down. It's one of those people where it's like, you know, you can go to them and say, I don't appreciate you doing that. And they say, well, that's your problem. That kind of attitude. And I thought to myself, in hindsight, that's kind of interesting because in the most ultimate sense, it is my problem, isn't it? Our, our suffering, our responses to things are always our problem in the most ultimate sense. Of course, this doesn't justify other people's actions. I don't want to give you that impression. But at the same time, it's true. It's true. But anyway, so <clears throat> eventually, you know, things came to a head with my relationship towards him. And it was just this kind of gradual decline. Like you, at first you think, I can handle this. I can handle this. I can't handle this. I can't do it. It's just downward sloping. I didn't see it coming until it was too late. And so he was eventually asked to leave, to no one's surprise, but the scars remained for a while, for maybe a month, a month and a half, two months after, I was just completely dejected. I didn't know if I wanted to be a monk anymore. I didn't know if I wanted to be here anymore. I didn't know if I even wanted to be alive anymore. It was such a painful time for me. But at the same time, <clears throat> there came a point where I just said to myself, Jesus, I can't do this anymore. I can't do this. Not, not this, but I can't be like this anymore. I have to make a choice. Either I have to leave or I have to fix this. And <clears throat> so that's what I did. It's not perfect, obviously. I don't want to make any claims of anything, but 
for that time, for a period of time after that all happened, I really dedicated myself to the practice of metta. Metta for myself, metta for this person, for all beings. And in a way of speaking, I had no choice. It was either that or leave. And so this experience was all so painful at the time, yet looking back on it now, I have to wonder if, if I hadn't been shaken from my complacency like that, from my comfort, would I, have, would I have pursued that course of action? Would I have had the impetus to do that? And I don't know. This is not to say that there's no wrongdoing on his part, but at the same time, we can always make light of any situation that is given to us, whether we've been abused or had some kind of trauma. We can always look at that in a positive light, seeing, you know, what did this motivate me to do? What changes did it motivate me to make in my life, in my practice? That's certainly a much more beneficial way than lying around dejected by what happened, lingering on past wrong deeds done. That doesn't get us anywhere. We always have to have a mind that's looking forward, looking forward through the present moment. By understanding the present moment, we have the promise of living more peacefully in the future. And so these are all the various ways why we can be thankful for these kinds of things. There are some clarifications, of course. <clears throat> None of this means that we should go searching for people who are um, you know, unwholesome. That's taking it too far. The Buddha says that when we associate with unwholesome people, it's a situation similar to wrapping up a, uh, a piece of cloth with rotten, in rot, rot, wrapping up rotting fish in a piece of cloth. You wrap the rotten fish up in the cloth, and then you take the cloth away, and no matter where you go, it still smells like rotting fish. So too, when we associate with unwholesome people, we just smell like them. We smell like rotting fish because people associate us with that person, and the, peop the person rubs off on us. You know, whether we like to admit it or not, peer pressure is a real thing. We like to think of ourselves as, you know, bastions of individuality that don't have any influence from outsiders. And that's lovely thinking, and it's perhaps true of the enlightened being, but for the rest of us, it's not the case. And so we have to choose our companions very carefully we have to choose the companions who are going to um, be reliable towards us, who are going to point out our, our wrongdoings and criticize us, not in mean or malicious ways, but with our own our welfare and best interests in mind. And we have to associate with people who are, in some ways, have better qualities than us in some ways. Someone who is more patient, more compassionate, more wise. When we do that, we have a goalpost that we can see. Oh, this person's this kind of, this patient, this um, compassionate. I, I should develop the same thing. You may think that this is a form of conceit, and that's true. But <clears throat> there's one very well-known sutta where Ananda, the attendant of the Buddha, says that it's by means of conceit that conceit can be abandoned. So, for example... If I see someone and they, they say, oh, I, well, I'm a stream enter, and they're confirmed to be a stream enter in some way, 
that I'm sitting there, I'm saying, you're a stream enterer? I'm not a stream enterer. What is this? I have to be a stream enterer now. And suddenly you practice to become a stream enterer. And same thing with all these other comparisons. We can acknowledge when our faculties are not as developed as someone else. This isn't, doesn't mean we get jealous of them, but we rise up to the occasion. If we see someone who has better patience than we do, then we say, I want to develop that kind of patience. And that leads us in the right direction. Whatever gets skillful qualities developing is something that's wholesome. That's, it's pragmatic in that regard. Um, <clears throat> the other thing also is that when it comes to these people, with difficult people or troubling times, we can't let our minds sink into despair. This is a very easy thing to do, but it's something we have to be very keen not to, do, not to let ourselves fall into. Because there's some degree of gratification in despair as well, as odd as that sounds. If any of you have ever had depression, you may know what I'm referring to. There's a certain comfort and familiarity in these kinds of feelings. There's one uh, song, I forget by who, it's, who it's by, but the lyrics start with, Hello, darkness, my old friend. We make friends with our, our despair, with our dukkha, even though they're not, it's not a very good friend. But we think to ourselves, well, a bad friend is better than no friend, right? But no, that's not the case. The Buddha says that if you can't find a good friend, then go alone. So you get rid of this despair, get rid of that depression. It's a bad friend, it's an abusive friend, you don't need that. We can instead have the opportunity to move forward. And this is where the second, third, and fourth things that we should be thankful for come into play. The first was difficult situations, difficult people, troubling times, and so on. The second one, third and fourth one, are the Buddha, Dhamma, and the Sangha. These are perhaps the things we should have the utmost thankfulness for because these things can lead us to the end of any kind of suffering whatsoever. We can be thankful to our parents and our friends, but they can't do that for us. We can be thankful for our material possessions and our health, but that won't last and that won't save us. It's only by following the Dhamma, following the Buddha's teachings, as the members of the Noble Sangha did, that we can attain this. There's a, a set of verses in the Dhammapada. Uh, I'm not going to do the Pali because it'll be too long, but it goes, they go to many a refuge, those who have been struck by fear. They go to mountains and forests, to parks, trees, and shrines. But none of these is a secure refuge. None is the refuge supreme. Not by relying on such a refuge can one be freed from all dukkha. <clears throat> But one who has gone for refuge to the Buddha, Dhamma, and Sangha sees with perfect wisdom the Four Noble Truths, suffering, the arising of suffering, the transcending of suffering, and the path leading to the end of suffering. This is the refuge that is secure. This is the refuge that is supreme. By relying on such a refuge as this, one is released from all suffering. So what this is pointing to is that the triple gem, as it's called, or the triple refuge, the tisarana, 
allows us to come to the end of these things, the end of fear, the end of anxiety, the end of sorrow, or in brief, the end of dukkha. But this isn't done through some miraculous waving of the hand. The Buddha doesn't come down from the heavens and say, no more suffering for you. You're done with that. No, it's something we have to do ourselves. In the Dhammapada, there's another verse, Atahi Atanonato, Kohinato Parosia, Atanavasudantena, Natang Labati Dullabang. One's self is one's own protector. Who's, uh, who else could be one's own protector? When one restrains and controls oneself, one gains a protection difficult to gain. So what this is pointing to is that when we take refuge in the Buddha, Dhamma, and Sangha, it doesn't mean just having faith and being done there. It means going forward in the practice of the Dhamma. It means putting the Dhamma into practice through words, speech, and thoughts. Otherwise, it's just an object of blind veneration. It's this thing you put in your china cabinet on display and then you never touch it and it gets all dusty. We don't want our practice, we don't want our refuge to be like that. We want to use it every day, every moment. We want to reflect on the good qualities of the Buddha, Dhamma, and Sangha as Bhante Mangala will get into tomorrow. <clears throat> What's more than that also is that the Buddha, we can take him as our friend. At one time, Ananda said to the Buddha, he said that spiritual friendship is half the holy life, having good companions. And the Buddha reprimanded him, saying, don't say that, Ananda. Spiritual friendship is the entirety of the holy life, or the entirety of the practice of Dhamma. What he goes on further to say then is that when one relies on me as their friend, or one relies on the Buddha as a friend, then one can overcome suffering. Because what do we do when we have a good friend? We listen to them. And that's, so that's what the Buddha says. I have your best interests in mind, so take my advice to heart. Genuinely think about it. Don't just dismiss it offhand. Investigate it. The Dhamma is ehipasiko, calling one to come and see. These things don't just appear willy-nilly. The Buddha says to us through his Dhamma that the overcoming of dukkha is possible, but you need to do the effort, put in the effort, do the work by yourself. You need to guard yourself. You need to develop your own mind. And it's only by that that we can overcome dukkha. <clears throat> and so what this means for taking a refuge in the Buddha Dhamma Sangha is that whenever these difficult things come our way, we can always step back into that refuge, saying that, you know, this difficult thing has come to be, so it is. But if I put the Dhamma into practice, if I investigate the Dhamma, I can overcome this. I can overcome this experience. I can overcome these painful feelings. And I have to do it with wisdom, with concentration, with understanding. And this is certainly a tall order. Many other refuges, they've simply promised, if you have faith in this, then you won't have suffering. That's it. All you need is faith. Faith certainly plays a part in this, 
perhaps we could call it confidence instead, but it's not the, it's not the entire package. <clears throat> when we talk about sadha or faith or confidence in the triple gem, we're not talking about blind faith. We're talking about a reasoned and developed confidence. One simil- two similes that we can think of with this are first, um, suppose, for example, you wanted to learn how to play the piano. So you decide to go and search for a piano teacher on Craigslist, on Facebook, wherever you go, search for piano teachers, I don't know. So you find a teacher, you know, he has an advertisement, the rate's not bad. You say, well, okay, can't go, what, what do I have to lose? Can't go wrong. Worst case scenario, I find a different piano teacher, no big deal. So you go meet with the piano teacher. He teaches you the basics of piano, the chords, the keys, the positioning of the fingers, and so on. And over time, as you practice that, he's not there, the teacher's not there all the time while you're practicing, but you know, you go back to him for a guide, for a reference to kind of gauge your progress. As you keep practicing according to his instructions, you start to get the hang of it. You start to learn how to play the piano and you get into the more advanced topics and the subtle topics and so on. And then eventually, you may find yourself a virtuoso of the piano, just like your teacher. And it's only at that time, it's only, it takes a master to recognize a master. It takes a piano virtuoso to recognize when another is a master of the piano. And it's quite the same thing with the development of the Dhamma. Initially, we are subject to dukkha. We have problems in our life. We have stress. Whatever reasons you all came to decide to do meditation or other spiritual practices. And so there's search. The Buddha says that when we come in contact with dukkha, one of two things happen, either floundering or search. Obviously, search is the better option there. Floundering gets nowhere very quickly. So we go to various spiritual systems, spiritual teachers, <clears throat> and perhaps we try them out if they seem appealing to us. And we, we give these things a genuine go. You know, we, don't, we aren't spiritual window shoppers. We pick, I don't know, kundalini yoga today, tomorrow we're gonna do vipassana, the next day we're gonna do um, Sikhism or something like that. We really have to give effort and do an investigation of whatever system seems to um, satisfy our intellectual understanding. And it's only by that point that we can start to see whether that system is in fact valid or whether it has shortcomings and drawbacks. We can see whether it's fully effective. The same thing happens in the Buddhist teaching. We come to the Buddhist teaching, we perhaps read some books on the Dhamma, read some sutras, and we say, seems reasonable for a noble truth. It's pretty good. That sounds okay. No more dukkha. That sounds pretty good. Okay. Let's try it. So we, you know, we start practicing little by little. It's hard at first, as is any new skill. Meditation is just that, a skill. And so it's hard at first. Our mind is distracted. We get bored. The mind wants to do other things. It wants to go watch Netflix and have Doritos instead of meditate all these kinds of distractions that can come up. <clears throat> but if we have the wherewithal to persevere, we eventually, we eventually, if we put in the right effort in the right direction, then we start to see 
what the Buddha taught. We start to see with our own experience. We go beyond the intellectual understanding, the theoretical frameworks of the Dhamma, and we start to see within our own experience how all these things in the Dhamma are connected, how when we put on the Buddha's lens, when we put on the lens of the Dhamma, we start attenuating our suffering. And if we would just get some Dhamma LASIK surgery, we would never have suffering again because we wouldn't need these glasses. We would just have permanent vision of the Dhamma. No more suffering at that point. I need these because I can't see you all anymore. Um, where was I going with this? <laughs> um, let's see, we were talking about glasses. Right. So... It's only when we become enlightened or enter the stream of the Dhamma ourselves, that's called stream entry, that we can really start to appreciate the Buddha's teaching. That's when our faith comes and turns, transforms into confidence. First, we had faith because we had an intellectual understanding, but we didn't see it for ourselves. All we had was a belief. But when we see the Dhamma, it turns into confidence. That's why one of the fetters that a stream enter overcomes is called doubt. When one is a stream enter, they have the vision of the Dhamma, all that is subject to arising, all that is subject to passing away. They know this for themselves directly. And because they see this, they know that there's no other teacher like the Buddha. There's no other teacher who points these things out. There's no other Dhamma, no other teaching that can point these things out as the Buddha did. <clears throat> and it's at this point that we can truly say we go to refuge in the Buddha, Dhamma, and Sangha. Many people, they show their reverence to the Triple Gem in various ways. They light incense, they place flowers, they bow, Tibetans even do hundreds of thousands of prostrations as a form of reverence. They do all these external things. And that's fine, but refuge, confidence, is something that comes from within oneself. And it doesn't come because saying, oh, the Buddha, um, he sounds good, or I like the Buddhist tradition, or I like the Buddhist teachers, or my parents were Buddhists, or whatever. Those are all shaky foundations of confidence. <clears throat> the only stable base for that is seeing the Dhamma for oneself. And it is that that supersedes all the other ways of showing reverence. When one is a noble disciple, every action they do is reverential to the Triple Gem because they're drinking the Dhamma at that point. And when they're drinking the Dhamma, they're finally taking the Buddha's advice to heart. They're going on the course of treatment that he prescribed. And that's how they revere the Buddha. They're listening to him. <clears throat> They're following his advice, not just in this intellectual way, but in every moment, every fiber of their existence, they practice Dhamma, they practice mindfulness. They have this level of devotion. And this is not something that's out of reach for us. It's something that we can gradually work towards, this kind of sincere, genuine confidence. 
And when we develop that, it's truly a refuge because we know that we have the capability, we have the ability to overcome dukkha because we've seen, sorry, we've seen that there is a path to the ending of these things. And we're thankful to the Buddha for expounding this path. It's said that the arising of a Buddha in the cycle of samsara is an extraordinarily rare thing, i.e. that it's not very often that one gets a chance to practice the Buddha's teaching without rediscovering the Buddha's teaching for oneself, which is quite a difficult matter. And furthermore, it's also said that it's extremely rare to be born as a human being in the 31 realms of existence in Buddhist cosmology. And so there's suddenly we find ourselves with this double, double whammy of good fortune. We're born as humans while a Buddha's dispensation is alive and well. <clears throat> and you may not believe in all these things or not, but if you do, all the better. But regardless of that, this, this moment is not something we can squander. It's not something we can just complacently say, I can practice the Dhamma later. Let me, let me, let me do some fun things now. I want to go to the parties and I want to drink and I want to, I don't want to meditate, that's boring. I want to, fo- let me focus on my career for a while. Let me focus on this and that. You see this somewhat often in, in the traditional um, Buddhist cultures. There's this idea that, um, I've read somewhere like in or Thailand, for example, like young men especially ordain as monks temporarily because it's the expectation that, oh, you have to be a monk and then that's how you can get, you know, be suitable for marriage. I have to get this temporary ordination so I can get married. And it's a rather odd thing. And then you find older Thai people, once they, you know, retire and the kids are at the house, they say, oh, now I can practice Dhamma. I've, I've had my fill of things. But in fact, you should practice Dhamma immediately, as soon as possible. You shouldn't wait until that time because you don't know if you're going to make it till that time. And then what will you do? These things, practicing the Dhamma, it's an insurance policy in a way. If we practice the Dhamma ardently and sincerely for the sake of stream entry at the very minimum, we suddenly have an insurance policy that our time in this samsara is limited, that our time of having, being subject to dukkha is limited. We have that absolute assurance that there will be only seven more births in this cycle of rebirths that we have to go through in order to fully purify our minds. And so it's for these reasons even further that we can be very thankful for the Triple Gem because it's a rare opportunity. Even if you don't believe in the ideas of rebirth and 31 realms of existence and so on, then how rare is it that you have the opportunity to practice this at all even in this world? How many people have the opportunity to have the ability to practice these things? How many of them are either so caught up in the daily occupations of their lives that they can't see the value of these things? Or how how many of them, the material conditions just aren't right that they can practice the Dhamma in a very satisfactory way? It's quite hard to practice the Dhamma when, you know, there's war and strife and such things going on in one's country. We're quite privileged in that regard. And instead of being ashamed of that, we should use it. 
we can use what we have in order to better ourselves, to purify our minds. And when we purify our minds, we're showing the utmost gratitude towards all beings. Because the Buddha says that one shows compassion to others by showing compassion to oneself. By purifying one's own mind, that is the supreme compassion that we can show to other beings. A, because, you know, let's say you met an enlightened being, whatever your conception of that might be. You go to that being and you feel a great set, I, I imagine you'd feel anyway, I don't know, a great sense of peace, saying that this being has no ill intentions in mind. This is someone I can trust. This is someone who has my best welfare in mind. And then perhaps they can teach the Dhamma to that person. And then that's really, truly the highest gift that one can give. Because one can give food, shelter, money, and so on. And these are very nice and meritorious, generous things. That's, there's no doubt about that. Yet at the same time, the removal of dukkha at its root is something that only one can do for oneself. None of us can give you anything in, ultimate, in the most ultimate sense that's going to alleviate your suffering. We can say words that are the, of the Dhamma, sure, but it's up to you individually to put them to practice, to, to really eat them, to really drink them, to really have them perforate your every day. Hmm. Well, I guess that's a pretty good place to just about end that then, huh? <laughs> um, just one, one final remark is that, <clears throat> so these are all things that we can be thankful for. Truly, we can be thankful for anything. It's a matter of just changing our perception towards it in a skillful way. One thing that the Buddha says of the Arhant the enlightened being, is that they can change their perceptions whatever way. They can see beauty in the non-beautiful, non-beauty in the beautiful, and so on. We can just do the same things with these things. Instead of dwelling on those who have hurt us, saying that this person abused me, this person hurt me, this person did this and that to me, we can instead say, this person taught me a lesson. It wasn't their intention to teach me a lesson, probably, but... I took it that way. That's a choice we can make. We don't have to revel in our misery. And this is quite succinctly put in the Dhammapada, once again. The Buddha says, Akkochimang avadimang ajinimang ahasime ye chatang upanayanti verang tesang nesammati. He abused me. He beat me. He scolded me. He robbed me. In those who harbor such thoughts, Hatred is not appeased. And then he goes on to say that one who does not harbor those thoughts, for them hatred may be appeased. So it's all about how we perceive these things, how we pay attention to them. If we focus on the wrongdoing that was done to us, we're going to get nowhere because we're just going to run in circles in our pain, in our, <clears throat> in our hurt pride, in our damaged egos, however you want to describe it. But instead, we can cultivate a positive relationship towards these things. You know, these other situations may be negative. They may have negative intentions. 
but we don't have to. We have that choice. We don't have to respond to unskillful things with more unskillfulness. We can choose to respond with skillfulness that leads to our mental purity. And we do, when we do this, it'll be for our welfare and our happiness for a long time. We'll finally be able to go wherever we want, knowing that there is security, security from dukkha. This, was, this is one thing that I really, I really felt when I started practicing metta a lot more. When I first came here, I was extremely angry, extremely vindicative. Again, not claiming I still don't have those traits to some degree, but I, I do sincerely feel I'm better in that regard. Maybe you can ask them if they agree about that. <laughs> um, but I remember feeling when I first came here, you know, I was 22 and naive and all these things, that I had a fe certain fear, a fear that I would walk into a room and say, oh, who's going to piss me off today? What's going to get on my nerves today? Oh, I know it's going to be something. What is it today? Hmm? Is it you? Is it you? Who's it going to be? But when we, when, we develop these, when we develop things in this way, when we develop metta, then suddenly we can go into a room and say, you know, there might be a situation that's difficult, but I think I can handle it. So I wish that for all of you. May you be thankful for things that are worthy of being thankful for, and may you all dwell peacefully and contently. So go ahead and take a short break and come back for meditation. Um, you can submit any questions in the box in the Sangha Hall and I'll be answering them tonight. So thank you. <laughs>